Domino Diaries, Episode 8, Part 2, Land of Many Tongues, The Battle of Kavango. Our next story begins in a delta far from our own, deep in the interior of the motherland. To get there, vast deserts and plains would be crossed by man and animal alike. To reach the fertile basin of a mighty river, which, in the rainy season, would overflow its banks and pour out onto the land, creating a world half fresh water and half green vegetation. Deep blues, greens, and golds were the colors of this landscape where massive herds of elephants congregated, herds of zebra, waterbuck, lechway, buffalo migrated, birds from across continents flew down to breed, and lions, leopards, cheetahs, painted dogs, and hyenas hunted the herds. When the sun rose in this land, the sky would turn deep red, and at night the stars painted the sky. Deep within the delta stood a temple, very old. It was the temple of the Mino, the very first, where the original Grand Mino developed the philosophies of feminine warcraft and divine spirituality. For many thousands of years, this temple served as the heart of our order, where Mino from around the world could make pilgrimage, but a day had come when the temple faced a terrible threat. The waters of the floods had kept the temple safely isolated from the enemies of the Mino for an entire season, but the rains eventually lessened and the waterways dried up, making the ground easier to travel across. The Kaskazini army of Shuja had been campaigning against the Mino for two decades and were now encroaching on the heart of their territory with intent of conquest and genocide. The Kaskazini like those tribes of our southeast, had been manipulated by external entities through a series of coups and coercions to turn on their feminine counterparts. They marched across the delta to the perimeters of the temple of Kavango, where they laid siege to it, steadily starving the Mino out of the temple into the open. The current queen of the Mino, whose name was Kola, held out for as long as she could, but it was clear to her that there would be no soft end to this siege, and after much counsel and deliberation, it had been decided that if the temple could not be saved, then at the very least the Kaskazini would be given a fight their descendants would never forget. Kola sat before a shrine to Jah Most High, her spiritual protectors and ancestors. She prayed before the wisp of incense to the spirits of the Delta, promising to fight to the last breath to protect the land, but that ultimately its fate beyond her would be according to Jah's will, and beyond this ritual of preparation, she forgave herself for what she could not control. Kola felt sadness for the course of the last two decades and the betrayal of the Kaskazini king in Kuruk. She remembered life before the war and missed it, but no tears streamed from her eyes, and her heart was steady with immunity to fear of battle. Kola had had placed around her five daggers, each unique in shape and composition. In front of her was a bowl of sacred water and the cloth she used to soak up the water and wipe over the daggers. The daggers were magical, the legendary changing spears as carried by most of her order. These were particularly special, though, because they belonged to her four daughters who each entered the shrine room near the setting of the sun, which shone ochre light into the space. From outside, Kola could hear the ruckus of the army which surrounded the temple. 
Each of her daughters came to sit around her in front of their own spears. They had been raised in this temple and had each been born as incarnations of the four pillars of Mino philosophy and spirituality, all divine in their nature. Her eldest daughter, black-haired and fierce-eyed, was Calafia. Calafia was the protector of her mother and her sisters, the grand general of the order, the defender of the temple. Her colors were red, black, and white, for the element of fire passed down in her spirit from her divine father, Shango, spirit of thunder and war. Calafia was incarnate of the first Mino pillar, Warcraft which establishes the peace and security of the other pillars to exist in harmony. Her second daughter was Oruru Dalani, whose birth had attracted every white bird in the delta to the waters around the temple. Oruru was an incarnation of faith, the second pillar, her colors white and silver, and her sacred animal, the white egret. Her body was incarnate of the temple itself, and its strength aligned with the tranquility it and her strength aligned with the tranquility of its halls. Oruro thrived in the freedom of air's characteristics, and her father was the high and mighty Obatala sky father. Third of Kola's daughter was Kalani, incarnate of truth, the third pillar, and aligned with water, for water and truth are alike in nature, both fluid, coarsen, and nourishing to life. Kalani's colors were gold and cerulean blue, and her nature was soft and reserved, tuned to the responsibilities of peace, which must be kept by one who is strong enough to wield it, but also to defend it. Kalani was the most mutable of her sisters, but she was the fiercest when provoked, and her rage in defense of peace could call down terrible wind and heavy rain. Her father was an old spirit of fresh water, who'd ruled over the delta for many eons before gifting stewardship to the ancient Mino. Fourth and youngest of Kola's daughters was Oyen Ewe, the incarnate of home, the fourth pillar, for in their heart resided the power of fertility and the sanctuary of ancestral power. Their colors were green and black for their father, Oko, a gentle spirit who taught them the secret of bees and the art of growing things. All four sisters sat with their mother as she blessed their spears and placed each in the daughter's hand. Kola was a mighty warrior and medicine woman whose waist circlet was emblemed by a scorpion as a mark of her placement in one of the most esteemed factions of Mino scholars and healers. She wore black as a signifier of her status and her warrior prowess, of her eldership and her ferocity as the black panther of whose form she took, inherited from her mother's people from the vast rainforest to the north, who'd maintained shape-shifting abilities and command over the forces of nature. With their combined strength, the five women sitting at this shrine were some of the most powerful in all the world. But even still, they were being faced by an army of warriors whose caliber had always matched and perhaps even surpassed at times that of the Mino. The Shuja were just as old, just as disciplined, just as led with divine blood as their feminine counterparts. Kola held no resentments to them. As a whole, knowing the demands of war and allegiance to tribe and nation to be complex, and that many warriors fought as a duty, and not always personally. Unkaruk had grown powerful, and his corruption of the Shuja order had been many years in the making. 
Many Shuja had not been able to choose peace, and those who did had been met with punishment inflicted upon their families, tribes, and ethnicities. Kola embraced each of her daughters and spoke courage into them. Kalafia and Owuru had known some tranquility in their lives, but the younger Kalani and Oyin had been raised with war in the air, prepared since birth for the fight of their lives. Kola wished she could have raised them with softness and tender care, but reality had demanded her stern love. Her tender touch at that moment had sent a shudder through Oyin's body. Suddenly, the danger outside was realer than ever. Kola turned to her second eldest, Oruro Dalani, who was most emotional to the upcoming battle for the secret she'd shared with her mother only just that morning. Kola touched her daughter's face, assuring that she had a plan for what troubled Dalani so. The sun eventually set, and Kola sent her teary-eyed daughters to rest and waited for the dusk to become pitch-black night. She knew it unwise to walk as a woman, so she took the form of a black leopardess and crept stealthily to the temple's perimeter where the Kaskazini army had surrounded it, their campfires lighting up the landscape all around. Most of the men were foot soldiers or officers of fluctuating rank. Only a portion of them, Shuja, high-status warriors who commanded sections of the army as a whole, King Nkaruk had spared no expense and had sent his very best to seize the heart of the fertile delta he wished to add to his empire. Her leopard form moved through the shadows unseen, dangerously deep into the camp of her enemies until she reached the tent of a shuja she knew well. The two guards in armor stepped aside without a word and she slipped inside without announcement because the shuja, sitting alone in meditation in his tent, had been expecting her arrival. He opened his eyes as Kola transformed back into her human form. He bowed his head respectfully. From Ja. From Ja, she said back. And Sabadavida, chief of the Bone Clan, known colloquially as the Hard Heads, gestured for her to sit. He rose to pour her some herb tea, but she turned it away, insisted that this meeting would need to be quick. Davida was not the general of the Shuja army, but he was of the deadliest of its warriors. His tribe dedicated themselves to the veneration of the dead and the care of the dying and elderly. His people were masters of the art of burial and rituals of passage and spiritual cleansing. Despite his reputation on the battlefield and the fight and the fright manifested in his enemies at the sight of his bone armor off the field, Davida preferred quiet, peace, and diplomacy. It was this capacity for softness which had attracted her daughter's heart to this man. Awuro Dalani and Davida had met in war negotiations and through a series of exchanges across years had realized that they were tragically in love with each other. Despite their loyalties to opposing factions, Kola could barely believe the secret her daughter shared with her at dawn. She could see in Davida's eyes that he was troubled by the inevitability of battle as well, but he could not reveal himself as a Wuru's lover, or he would be mocked as a traitor and condemned to death. If you've come to ask me to persuade these men away from sacking the temple, then you are here in vain. I've done all I can to sway this war from your doorstep, 
But when Nkuru offered you a truce, you refused. There's nothing I can do. The king's truce was hardly acceptable. He offered nothing but the sparing of our lives and the pimping out of our lands to his Aluguru masters. But that's all beside my point of coming here. I'm not asking you to stop the battle from happening. I've had plenty of time to accept my fate, she said. Then why have you come? Davida asked, and Kola answered, to make a deal. Davida nodded his ear. You are not king, nor general, but we both know that it is you these men respect most, you whose sword is truest. You are the best among them, and they will be looking to you throughout this battle. As it stands, I will be the fiercest opponent your men will face tomorrow, with nothing to lose or gain. I intend to die in defense of this temple, and I will take many souls by my spear before I fall. My daughters and the keeper of the temple rest with the same sentiment on their hearts, and though I do not see a victory for us, I can promise heavy losses on your side. I propose an alternative to the bloodshed, however. When the battle begins, find me, and you and I will battle with all the might we can summon. If I win, then you will die as many others, until the temple is eventually overtaken, and my daughters and I will rise to ancestorhood through our courage, and the fate of the Mina will become the responsibility of an other by God's choosing. But if you can defeat me, it will be witnessed by the Shuja. And though the battle will still be bloody, they will owe you a debt for your defeat of a grand Mino. Why do you suggest this? What would my praise do to serve you? He asked. And Kola said, not me, my daughters. If you can achieve such an act of valor as defeating me, then the Shuja will have no choice but to respect the weight of your voice in the post-battle deliberation. Convince them in whatever way you can to spare the lives of my daughters should they survive, and demand that the Mino of the temple and those captured from previous battles not be imprisoned, mutilated, or abused. Use your influence to advocate for the preservation of what is left of my order, she said. And Davida shook his head. You overestimate me. I can't. She's pregnant, Kola said. And Davida's sentence caught in his throat. My daughter is pregnant with your child. Her life force is connected to that of our entire order, to the standing of the temple. She may survive its occupation by another entity, and she may survive the grief of losing myself, but she will not persist if the temple is destroyed in the sacking. She will not make it if she is imprisoned. She is not built for bondage. I know what has happened to the tribes who opposed Nkaruk, how they were captured by their neighbors and sold off to the pale demons from the north and shipped across the sea. Those poor souls may survive, but my daughter will not, you understand? Her body will not endure, and the death of the child she carries will weigh forever on your soul if you do not make a way. I've offered you assurance. I will find you on the field. All you have to do is meet me there. 
If you are strong enough to defeat me, then you may be strong enough to save my daughter and her sisters. It is my request, the duty I will hold you to in the afterlife, she said, knowing well the sacredness of the dead to his clan. Davida took a deep breath in consideration of Kola's words before nodding his head and agreeing to her proposal. They would tell no one of the deal between them. Like thunder, the drums of the Kaskazini had rumbled before their advance onto the temple, and the Mino of Kavango met them fiercely. A single Mino fought with enough ferocity to bring down 20 Shuja and foot soldiers, earning at the very least hesitation and reconsideration of hasty advances and careless attacks, which would cost a hand, an arm, a leg, an eye. The screams of men filled the air as weapons clashed as the 200 or so Mino of the temple fought against the thousands of Shuja warriors. Kalafia led the charge, and the flash of her red armored form struck fear into her enemies who witnessed her move with the quickness of wind, summoning elemental power down from the sky, darkening with her rage. Kalani and Oyen fought as a team, pushing Shuja back from their mother who reserved her energy, waiting behind a wall of Mino for the arrival of Saba Davida. Eventually, he did find her, dressed in black armor and wielding her golden spear. He wore his fist, skull, helm, and bone armor and rose his hammer to Kola, who met his gaze with her own fist and challenging eyes. Their deal had been struck, but Kola would not give the Shuja an easy fight. He would have to earn the right to keep faith in Kola's place, or else Awuru and her baby were as good as dead. Space was made by Kola's command of Hamino and by the intimidation of the Shuja, who knew better than to get in the way of a duel of titans like Kola and Davida, nicknamed by his men and feared by his enemies as the Bone Collector, for the relics of his most fearsome enemies he wore on a string around his neck, keeping pieces of them bound in the physical world, subjected to his clan's rule. As price for their challenge of his hammer and sword, the warriors crossed the space and Davida swung his hammer and Kola dodged it and sliced with her spear. He pivoted to block the strike and drew a dagger from his hip with his free hand, but Kola, despite her seniority of over two decades, was quick as a panther. She evaded his stripes and kept him back with the length of her spear. There was no advantage held between them, though, because when Davida got close, his hammer struck so forcefully that Kola needed all her strength to brace her blocks. They battled on, each drawing blood here and there, wearing each other down, moving slower with each blow. Kola's eyes were fierce, and it was not lost to Davida that where he wore a full suit of armor, her arms and her face were bare, Yet she'd done significant damage to him. She'd cut him on the leg, making it difficult to push strength into his attack, and he'd cut her spear arm, and she'd had to switch to the other, less adapted one. They took quick breaths of preparation before they were at each other's again, and they exchanged a flurry of blows so fast, but each one registered. It was like time slowed down a bit. Every swing was a flashing of a lifetime before their eyes, as any moment they knew that one of them would fall to the other. 
Kola swung her spear and cut Davida's arm, and his hammer fell from his wrist, and she moved in. But by some stroke of lucky fate, Davida was able to grit through the pain in his leg, and he yelled out as with all his might he pulled her spear, and her body moved forward into the momentum of the dagger swung by his uninjured hand. There was a slice felt through the blade, and Kola's body stilled, and her spear fell to the ground. Her three daughters on the battlefield were still too occupied to sense their mother's end, but Auroro was struck with a sensation in her chest, like part of her own soul leaving her body. As a gust of air stirred through the chamber, she prayed in before her altar. Herself and the white-armored priestesses who, along with her, remained always at the temple and stood within it as its last defense, were awaiting the inevitable pounding down of the doors to the chamber. She sat with the young Mino-to-be, children and teenagers who were not yet initiated. She kept herself planted firmly between them and the door. She cried out, though, when she felt the sensation of her spirit of her mother's... When she felt this... I'm sorry. She cried out, though, when she felt the sensation on her spirit of her mother's death. She reached for her own throat because she felt the phantom sting of the slit across it the cries of battle grew louder as it raged, and Awuro prayed for who knows how long until it was clear the Shuja had broken past the entrance and were marching through the temple to the shrine room. With tears streaming fists down her cheeks, Awuro placed on her helm and rose up, readying her spear to defend the temple with her last moments. The doors pounded from the other side until they were burst open and the priestesses of fate roared a war cry as the light of the hall filled the chamber. But the Shuja did not rush in. Commanded to hold back by a powerful and familiar voice, like a terrible and miraculous angel of death, Sabadavida entered the chamber, cut and bleeding, limping forward, still catching his breath. He'd immediately gathered his men from the battlefield so they would be the first to enter the temple and block the rest of the army from killing the priestesses and children inside. He did not take off his helmet, but Oruro met his eyes, which drifted to her stomach, and she knew then that he must have known about her pregnancy. She shook with shock as he threw down her mother's spear before her. The Battle of Kavango was over and the Shuja laid claim to the temple and the delta, and Davida did as promised and advocated for restraint to be had with the surviving Nino. And Kalafia and Oruro were taken into custody, but they were not killed. The third and fourth sisters, Oyin and Kalani, were missing, however. They searched for them after the battle among the dead, but did not find them, nor were they found in the temple. The missing sisters were not seen again.